As we begin planning for the uncertainties of the fall semester, it is helpful to have a rich toolkit of evidence-based teaching practices that can work in multiple modalities. In this episode, we discuss a variety of these practices that can be effectively matched with your course learning objectives. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Claire Hellmajor, Michael S. Harris, and Todd Zakrajek. Claire is a professor of higher education administration at the University of Alabama. Michael is a professor of higher education and director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Southern Methodist University. Todd is an associate research professor and associate director of fellowship programs in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Claire, Michael, and Todd are the authors of many superb books and articles on teaching and learning in higher education. Welcome, Claire and Michael, and welcome back, Todd. Thank you, Rebecca. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Today's teas are... I got myself a nice hibiscus tea and my favorite little mug. Awesome. And I have a nice regular Coca-Cola. Chocolate milk dining in here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be a podcast first, Claire. <laughs> I'm 12, basically. That's <laughs> I'm drinking Scottish afternoon. And I'm drinking ginger peach green tea. We've invited you here today to discuss the forthcoming second edition of Teaching for Learning, 101 Intentionally Designed Educational Activities to Put Students on the Path to Success, which forms a nice acronym of IDEAS. The first edition provided faculty with a large variety of evidence-based learning activities that faculty can adopt to enhance student learning. These were grouped into eight categories of teaching approaches, lecture, discussion, reciprocal peer teaching, academic games, reading strategies, writing to learn, graphic organizers, and metacognitive reflection. What will be new in the second edition? Thanks, John, for the overview and also for having us here today to talk about this. We're very excited about the second edition. I think we've got a great team here. I so enjoy working with Todd and with Michael on it. Basically, we've kept the same structure that you mentioned before. We have the same eight categories. We have the same structure within each chapter where we move from research to practical tips and specific ideas that people can use in their own classes. The idea is that it is a very broad kind of technique that we include when we include the techniques. And when we talk about the research, so it is something that people from all disciplines and fields could, in theory, use for their own classes. Now, in practice, people have to make decisions about what will work best for their learners at their institutions and their disciplines and field. So that part has stayed the same. We have updated the research from the first edition to the second, so it's five years later. So we have included many new research studies to support the message and what the research shows us about what works well in higher education, what has been shown 
to change educational outcomes of learners? What can faculty do in particular that will help student learning? Another thing that is new in this edition, and I think this is really timely right now, is a focus on online learning. So in the first edition, we talked a lot about how these would work in in-class or on-site settings. In this edition, we go that next step and say, here's some of the theory about what it means to do this online, and here are some techniques. And then within each specific idea, we say specifically, here are some tools that you can use to implement this in an online environment. So we have spent a lot of time working through that. We know how many people have shifted from on-site to online or hybrid courses and how important this is for successful teaching right now. So there's a big focus on that. One of the things as we were going through working on the online elements of this that's only become that much more important in light of the pandemic is understanding the ways to blend the in-person technique and technology together. And that's something I think as we've certainly gone through the last year, everyone has done that in a much more detailed way. But I think what we've in part set out to do here, because we started working on this before the pandemic, is there are elements of technology and teaching that faculty should be including afterwards, after the pandemic is over. And so one of the things I think readers will be able to take away, this is not a book written in response to the pandemic, that we can take these various techniques, take technology, take the understanding of your learners and context, as Claire mentioned, and then together figure out what is the best activity in your setting. I think that's as we set out identifying the various techniques throughout the book is understanding that no class, no instructor is going to be comfortable with everything. So we've tried to give what I like to think of as a broad menu for faculty under each of the broad topics, but also in terms of individual strategies and techniques that faculty can use in their setting. And the hope is if you need an idea to use for class that day, you can pick this book off the shelf and somewhere in there is going to be something that's going to work. I think we really love the mix of both the research and the practical aspects of the book. I think sometimes either it's just practical or it's just the research and it's hard to bring them together. So having everything in one place is very handy. <laughs> Faculty like that. We like convenience for sure. One of the things that I've been doing some research on recently is some students complaining about this online environment being so text heavy. And so I'm kind of curious if you could talk a little bit about maybe some of the research on graphic organizers and some of the strategies because that's a visual way of handling some information in a time where students are feeling really bogged down by text. I think to your first point, this is critically important. And as we first started talking about this book in the very, very early days, one of the things we wanted to do was to bring together both the research literature, what do we know from the scholarship, but also what are the practical things that faculty need to know how to implement these ideas. And so we very much kept that. That DNA was part of our very early conversations and is still part of the second edition. And I think one of the things that we found in terms of writing the book, and I think as we've heard from folks who've read it subsequently, is to be able to have access to the research for faculty. Those of us who are in teaching centers and faculty developers, we live this stuff every day. We know where the research is and what the most recent findings are. But most faculty, whether at an institution focused on teaching or even researchers, that access is much more difficult to find, right? It's spread out in hundreds of journals, most of which folks in the disciplines don't necessarily read. And so trying to bring that out and also insights from related disciplines, it's very difficult to access the literature because it's spread out in so many different outlets. It's in books, it's in journals, it's in places like podcasts. There's all these places to get the information. It's really difficult, I think, for a faculty member with a limited amount of time 
to dedicate to course planning and preparation to find all these resources. So that's what we wanted to do was bring that together, but also remembering that faculty need to be able to take all that information. I think as all of us have worked with faculty, we found they want to know that it's research-based and what those research findings are, but then they want to quickly get to, now what do I do with this information? And so that's the way we've set up the book is we're going to go through the literature. If you want to do a deep dive there, all of that information is there. But then we also want to be able to provide some really tangible, tactical things for a faculty member to do. And so as we've designed all the ideas and thought about the updated literature, that's still the core tenet of what we want to do. And actually, I think the second part of the question you said, Rebecca, with the visual aspects specifically, so I thought Michael covered it really, really well. But there's a whole section in the book with graphics, of course, and just so many different ways you could use the tools that are out there. Concept mapping right now and doing word clouds and setting up different ways for people to share a space and to drop in photos and images. There's a lot of them in there. And I like what Michael said in terms of there's so much information, it becomes really overwhelming. So my educational technology list is 118 different educational solutions right now that are being used. And so what we try to do in the book was spread out, not all 118 of them, but we spread them out. So if you're interested in concept mapping, here's a program called Coggle. And if you want to do word clouds, there's a traditional word clouds, but there's also Answer Garden, which gives you a little bit more opportunity to put some text in there, but lots of things on graphics. Going back to that division of teaching and research and practical tips, the research is not just on the general principle of how these things work, but specific studies of how the individual tools or the individual approaches have been used. And that I found really helpful. In the new edition, is this most appropriate for people teaching synchronous courses? Or you mentioned that there's the addition of online components. Are the online components primarily asynchronous online or synchronous online or some combination of those? Actually, that's great because this is a really exciting project to do. And one of the things we did to update the book was we went in and actually there's not 101. The title of the book is 101 Intentionally Designed Activities. I would challenge anybody who wants to sit down and rattle off 101. I want to hear you do it because when Claire and Michael and I got together, we said, yeah, 101 sounds great. And we got up to 100 and then everything started to sound like a variation on something we've already done. So the 101st one is actually a do-it-yourself intentionally. Isn't that great? It's perfect. Take your information and apply it. And the reason I bring this up is that means there are a hundred in there, a hundred different suggestions we have of how to engage your students. For this second edition, we went through and we came up with one synchronous and one asynchronous way of doing each one of those. So this book actually has 200 different ways to engage your students in synchronous and asynchronous classes. And I got to tell you that I was really impressed with the team here. To be able to pull that off is really, really challenging. Some of them are very easy. If you want to basically do a small group discussion or post something, you use Padlet or something is really easy. Some of them became really interesting. So for instance, Kahoot is a great adaptation to something like a Jeopardy type of thing. But then how do you do something like Jeopardy in an asynchronous course where it's going across time? So we're digging through and Kahoot turns out has a way of doing that. So really excited about having different ways of doing this in both synchronous and asynchronous classes. John, you mentioned how much research there is about the individual techniques. And I just want to share that there is so much research being done in education right now. It's just blossomed as a field of study. And that's wonderful. But I think Michael alluded to the fact that faculty members don't have time to sit down and read a thousand studies. But we do, right? <laughs> we did. 
And so we're sharing that information. We've synthesized and collated and culled out what didn't look like such a good study or trying to make it into something that's accessible for faculty who are busy and may not want to read that much educational research. I don't know, hypothetically. So we are trying to say, okay, here's what it says, and then definitely apply it to practice. You also mentioned the distinction between on-site and online. I think that distinction is becoming a little more blurred than it used to be. When I teach an on-site class anymore, I'm still having my learning management system set up. There's still stuff that I'm doing through the learning management system. There's still stuff I'm doing online. When I teach online, I still have maybe not face-to-face meetings, but I have Zoom meetings. I have these synchronous ones. And it just is not such a hard and fast distinction, I think. It's like I do this with people in the room in real time, or I do this through the technology. And I think we can use things in all kinds of settings. And that's what we've tried to share a little bit. And I do want to give a shout out or special credit to Todd on this, because there are some things that, like he said, this one technique, how would you do it on every one? I'm like, oh, well, that's an assignment. You submit that through your LMS. And Todd's like, no, here are 47 different other ways you can do that. (laughs) And it's like, there are some really creative ideas, I think, in there about different tools that you can use to do things in different ways. And so it's not all just submitted as an assignment through your LMS. There are a lot of really cool tools out there. And to go back to Rebecca's point, can make things more visual and more creative. And I think that involves students in ways that producing more text may not. It's like, oh, well, I get to make this beautiful professional looking product and share that with others. And that causes or at least creates an opportunity for engagement in ways that others can't. So yeah, we tried to share some good ideas about how to use technology. And that technology might be in an online class, or it might be in a hybrid or high flex class, or it might be in an on-site class where you use technology in a way that supports on-site learning. I really need to know What strategies were the most difficult to come up with cross-platforms or cross-modalities? I must know. You have to share. (laughs) There was one that took me about four days to get to. And so here's one for you. One of our on-site ones that we did was Pictionary, you know, drawing. So you divide your class into two teams and somebody takes a marker and starts to draw. And then, of course, everyone has to yell out an answer. Do that in an asynchronous class. That becomes challenging, but I stumbled across the program. Actually, I shouldn't say stumbled across. I've used it a couple of times, but as I was thinking about this, after a couple of days, I was thinking, no, you got to turn that a little bit. So there's a program out there called Formative. And Formative is something that you basically come up with an image that you start and you draw like a circle or something and you present that to the class. And then each class member draws what they see of that and then you can get feedback on that. And it suddenly occurred to me is instead of having people guessing back and forth real time that way, What you could do is provide the basic image for the class and then say, okay, I want everybody to draw something and submit it on this date. And then the first person who can figure out what it is, you basically write in. And so it's a way to do kind of Pictionary in an asynchronous way. That was one of the trickiest ones. That's funny that you mentioned that particular thing, Todd, because I'm teaching a class this spring, a new class for me. 
where I was trying to come up with a way of doing exquisite corpse, which is a folded paper drawing where one person would draw a head and then you try to do the body and then the next person does legs or something. Something like that with my class. And I came across an example of having different boxes essentially in a whiteboard app for each student. And I'm going to do pet robots. And so everybody draws one part of the robot, the nose, and then you pass it to the next person. And then you say like, oh, draw the head or whatever. So it's a way of doing that. But that took me a good few days to come up with a solution as well. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Well, and I thought I knew a lot about technology. And as Claire said, Todd would pull something out that never even heard of before or heard of it, but never thought to use it in that way. And I think that was one of those challenges is anytime you're writing a book, you don't want it to be obsolete by the time it comes out. And so it's always tricky with technology because websites change and services change and the ability to do different things change. But I think what we were able to do in the end was even though it may reference a particular website or software, the underlying design principle will hold even as we get different technology over time. And I think that was one of the things we struggled with five years ago because I'm just not sure technology across all 100 ideas was there. But I think now we're at the place where you could at least have some semblance of how you would do this even if that particular service was no longer available. really like that you said that because the one that I have to admit, one of the very first times I did exactly what you're thinking of here is I love doing gallery walks in classes. The traditional gallery walk, and I'm sure the listeners know, but you set up four or five flip charts. You put students in groups, smaller groups, each group's in front of a flip chart. They respond to a prompt, different prompts for each flip chart, and then you rotate and you keep rotating until you come back essentially the first one. And I thought about it for a little while and thought this would work out really well on a Jamboard. So you go to Google Jamboard and you set up five boards and people go through it. But just like Mike was just saying, if Jamboard goes away, all right, let's do it with Padlet. And if Padlet goes away, all right, we'll do it with something else. So once you think this is a way through technology to do this, then it becomes actually fairly easy to find other ways to do it. For faculty who are reading this for the first time, and they see now 200 techniques, maybe only 100 of which might apply for their courses, they might be tempted to try a lot of those. Would you recommend that people who are redesigning their courses or restructuring their courses try doing many new things all at once? Or should perhaps they use a more gradual approach? I think the answer to that question depends a lot on who the faculty member is. I think some faculty members want to go all in and try a lot of new things. I think some might do well trying one new thing and seeing how that works and then trying another new thing. I also think, again, it depends on who your students are, what your discipline is. A lot of our techniques, though, are things that can be done in addition to other things, like you might lecture for 10 or 15 minutes and then do a think-pair-share, or you might do a punctuated lecture where you stop and say, what are you thinking about right now, or something like that. So these are ones that can be incorporated into what faculty are already doing for the most part. So I really think it depends on what the faculty member wants to accomplish and what works best for their particular situation. I agree with Claire. I think there's a notion of depending on how many times you've taught the class, for example, there may be a different freedom to innovate in different ways. I think the other part, though, is we have to be careful when we talk about teaching innovation in this way, is beginning with the end in mind. Changing something for the sake of changing something is not a good idea to use one of these techniques. The idea is know what you're trying to get the students to learn. What is the content you're trying to get them to learn? And then look for a technique that best gets you there. Certainly, as I talk to faculty and think about ways they might do something different in class, 
you've got to start at that point. Then decide what is the most effective way to get your students there. Now, as much as I love all of the ideas in the book, they're not all going to work in every situation. Even if you were game to try them all, that would probably not be an effective way to teach class. But if you know what you want your students to learn, and then we always preach backwards design. There's a reason we do that. We start there and get them to what we want to know and then figure out what's the best way to do that. And I think that's to me, when I think about using these activities in my own classes and as I talk to other faculty, is if I know what I'm trying to convey, I can then say, well, now I need to go look for a game because this may be content that's a little drier. I know from the past the students don't enjoy it as much. So maybe a game would be a good thing to spice it up a little bit. Or if I know this is really important content and they need to understand it in a very specific way, well, now let me look for a lecture activity that I can convey that content. So I think that if you know what you're doing, then you can use the book and you've got the full menu available to you. But if you don't know what type of restaurant you're going to, the menu is going to be gibberish. I absolutely agree with that. I do want to follow up with one thing, though. I would say for the person who is, and surely nobody's still doing this, lecturing for 50 minutes without a break, even if you don't know why you're going to stop every 15 minutes to do a short thing, like maybe an interpreted lecture or pause procedure or something like that, even if you don't know why, go ahead and do it because it will help your <laughs> students learn better is why. That's the answer. We all know about human attention span and all that good stuff, but also just varying the activity a little bit and giving them something to reset their attention span will be really, really helpful to their long-term learning. So even if you don't have the perfect learning goal crafted out, if you could just stop every 10 or 15 minutes and give them something to do, something short to reset their attention span, and get them back on track, they're going to be able to listen to you more in that next lecture segment. So I absolutely agree with Michael. The one caveat is just stop every 10 or 15 minutes and do something different. I love what you just said there, Claire. But I'm not even sure it's attention span. I don't think it's attention span. I mean, that is part of it. But cognitive load. Well, that's part of it too. Yeah. Anytime you're trying to learn something new, how many times have you start to watch a video, a little YouTube clip on how to do a change your carburetor on your lawnmower or whatever, that you have to stop after about three steps and say, whoops, wait a minute, what was that stop again? We're the experts and we start spewing all this information. And I love that Claire said that and I live by backward design, so I love that one too. But the one thing we know from all the research that's the most clear thing out there is that putting something with a lecture always enhances learning. If you're only doing the lecturing and then you put something with it, it always does better. My biggest fight over the last three or four years, the research doesn't actually really say it's lecture versus active learning. If you read the research, the titles will say that at times. People argue that all the time. It's not lecture versus active learning. The research is lecture alone versus lecturing with active learning. And lecturing with active learning kicks butt all the time. So I love that. There's a lot of faculty who are now teaching online synchronously, which is, you know, a newer modality that's not written about quite as much. And John and I have been talking about that a bit the past few months on our podcast. Certainly since March. Yeah. I guess it's, it's coming up on a year. But I know one of the things that faculty are struggling with is ways to do the, some of these activities and build community online as part of that and get students connecting with their peers. Can you talk about some strategies that might be in your book that we could point faculty to looking into more? 
You know, it's such a great question because I think if I think about all the way back in the beginning of March when we had faculty on our campus that had never heard of Zoom before, we had had Zoom for a while, but most people had never had a reason to really use it. This is the single biggest challenge I think our faculty have faced. For some, getting in the learning management system was a struggle, but we could get past that fairly easily, at least to a threshold to be successful. Learning what to do, and I think to some extent it gets to Claire's answer about lecturing. We still have a number of faculty that do lecture almost exclusively. And so as soon as the pandemic took hold and we moved online, we had faculty that were just lecturing the entire time. And particularly, I think this is somewhat better, and at least for some student populations, you know, the internet capabilities and things, we were all just overloaded, right? Yeah, nobody could get on and constantly got the messages about connectivity problems and Zoom and all the rest. And so faculty started recording lectures. Then what happened, at least with our students, there was no reason to go to class anymore. I can watch that lecture and put it on two times speed and I can get out of class in half the time I used to. We've had a lot of conversations with faculty about how to make that time important. And especially for some faculty who are concerned about, well, once I record all my lectures, you don't need me anymore. Well, if all you're doing is doing those recorded lectures, we probably don't need you anymore. But do the things that faculty are best at. It is building communities. It's encouraging curiosity and creativity and all those things that get those of us in teaching really jazzed to get up in the morning and go to class, be it in person or online. And so I think for me, and as we're thinking about some of the techniques, the more complicated the modality gets, whether we're talking about something like high flex or synchronous online, I think in some ways that's where getting back to the basics can be helpful. So using some of the lecture and discussion techniques where you take a break and change, as we were talking about just a minute ago, I also think breakout rooms, and I know this is something I think Claire's talked about before, breakout rooms can sometimes be an extra layer of complication we may not need. And so thinking about the ways that small group discussions can be had in Zoom or any online platform. But I think that at the end of the day, for me, it's when we're using complicated technology, and it may not be complicated technology-wise, but right, different modalities that we're not always comfortable teaching in, and none of us would have designed in an ideal setting. We're clearly far from ideal. But if we can take some of those basic ideas, think pair share as an example. That's one that we've been using for forever. Can we use that in an online platform in a way that you're not trying to do too much technology? We had faculty early on who were trying to use every piece of technology in every class session, and they couldn't remember which to log in, and then this would crash and that would crash. It was just too much. So using the basic functionalities, some of the discussion techniques where you can use the chat window, I think many faculty are probably not using some of those basic functionalities as much. So I think that's, to me, as you're looking at the various techniques, if you can make it easier, the more complicated the student situation is. If you know you've got students that are working all day and coming to class at night, then maybe being super technical in different software packages, that may not be the time to do that. If you're working with traditional 18-year-olds who are savvy using a lot of different technology, then maybe you could. And I think that's, for me, been one of the lessons of the last almost year now is can we get back to basics and then let the technology help us still reach our students, build the community, build the engagement, use Zoom to access office hours and some of those kinds of things, which I think we're finding our students are having much more engagement with if we can get them to show up. So that's to me, if we can get back to the basics, then it would be helpful, I think, for both faculty and student learning. I'd like to pick up on this, too. And that's in part, I'm a mom. I have a 10th grader. The 10th grader is in the room right next to mine. I can't help but overhear sometimes. I try to stay focused on my work and not pay attention, but the house is only so big. And so I'm just hearing things. And some of his teachers 
Well, they're all wonderful people. They're lovely, lovely people doing excellent work in a pandemic. But some of them will talk for the full 60 minutes of the class. And I'm going to tell you, my kid, who is a wonderful, lovely person and a really, really good student, like you might expect, both of his parents are profs, we're nerds, we're a nerdy family. So he does well in school. He is not managing to stay focused for those 60 minutes. I will see him get up and go to the kitchen, maybe walk through. There may be a little pacing. It's just not happening. And then there are other teachers who will do some of the things that are in our book to mix it up. And he is in there. He's engaged. He's talking to the screen, talking to the teacher. He goes into breakout rooms. They'll ask a question like, what did we talk about last week? Like today I learned. What did we talk about last week? And why is that important today? Or they'll say, okay, so what do you think is going to happen in this experiment that we're about to do in chemistry? So like an anticipation or taking a guess kind of thing. They might occasionally go into breakout rooms to work a problem or to compare their notes for the session. They might break out and do some kind of jigsaw activity where they work together and then they teach each other. They might even do just a quick rewriting. They'll say, write for a minute, and then we'll take their responses. And it is like night and day. He doesn't leave the room. He is focused the whole time. He is able to maintain that attention and engagement. It's not just attention. Like Todd said, it's more than that. It's the ability to hang on, to concentrate, to process for his working memory to really be able to stay with the whole thing. And so I think that what we can do is use some of these techniques when we're teaching these synchronous things. So we're not just giving everybody Zoom fatigue. So we are giving them good educational experiences and not just 60 minutes wall of sound from the teacher because that's just not the best way. They're not going to learn the best in that kind of situation. Well, I heard a learner recently put it in the way that really helped me out. She said, I think about classes as to whether or not I could spend the entire class period ironing or not. <laughs> and she said, if I could stand up and iron an entire load of clothes while class is going on, and all I could conceptualize in my head is, oh, that'd be the same as like watching a soap opera or a television program while you're ironing. And she said, yep, if I can do that, I don't need to be in class. I can just look at the recording later. But just like what Claire was just saying, if you're doing all those things, my goodness, it'd be interrupting your ironing all the time. So make them do something. One of the things that's fascinating about teaching is that you're constantly straddling a line that has cut points of boredom and frustration. You got to be above boredom. You got to be interesting enough or present information in an interesting enough way that people will attend to it. But you can't do it in such a complex way that they're frustrated by it because they just can't get it. And so how can you take a learner and engage them, but not frustrate them? And that's why you have to always be looking for techniques or ways to do that. You know, it's funny you say that, Todd, because right before we started recording, I went out and I've got a sixth grader and he was in the kitchen getting some peanut butter cookies my daughter made this weekend. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm getting some peanut butter cookies. I said, okay, what are you supposed to be doing? Oh, I'm in class. The laptop's upstairs. He's downstairs in the kitchen. And he had his headset on and was listening. But I contrast that with other times when, like Claire, I go past and he's in class. And when he's got a notebook out and he's working, his art teacher right now, because I think some ways certain disciplines are kind of naturally inclined to go this way. With art, he's got different media out. He's got his markers and his crayons, his colored pencils. And 
different type of paper and he's doing this stuff. And then he'll be in another class and he can go to the kitchen, get cookies and not miss a thing. And while, yes, we're all doing the best we can, I do hope when we come out of this, there's going to be some lessons we take away from it. And one of those being, if we can just hit record and walk away, that's maybe not the best thing for an hour class or even longer for those who have longer classes. But if we can engage students, if we can stop for a minute, if we can make them think, if we make them do something, the combination of those two things, it's hard right now. If somebody was trying to do active learning for an entire 60-minute class, that'd also be really hard to do right now, given everything. But this blend, as Todd said earlier, the research shows when we can put lecture and active learning together and put some of these different techniques together, that's where I think we're going to see some benefit. And I think that's true, whatever we were teaching, we were talking about K-12 or higher education or anything one was trying to communicate. And that made me think of something else too, real quickly. I just heard a session done by someone who works at Zoom. And keeping in mind, Zoom is not static for those of you who are using Zoom. It's changing all the time. So they have now changed how the reaction buttons are used. They've got them set up in a much more easy format. They have some things that stay there until you take them off, some things that don't. There's all these other techniques too. Closed captioning, Zoom has finally got it. It just was launched, I believe, yesterday or the day before it came out. I've got students who have babies. They can't have the sound on. I mean, that's a new thing that's good. They've got another one now, and they can blur out the background. And here's what I really love about this with the guy was explaining it. He said, we're now going to have the capability instead of virtual backgrounds to blur the background. We did that for a more equitable situation for students who are uncomfortable with their housing situation. I was blown away that that's the reason the guy said they did it, not because, oh, here's another thing that people would like. So again, the technologies keep changing, but we as teachers, and so what Michael and Claire both said too is, we as teachers have to decide what to do and why. Again, back to backward design. And I'd like to pick up on the point too, that I think right now, making connections with other human beings is really, really important. And that's not just watching your teacher on TV. That is actually having some kind of meaningful exchange where you get to talk to another human being. And a lot of people haven't left their houses, not much since March, or they're not in class, they're still online. Just making that human connection is absolutely essential. And some of our techniques allow for that. They're putting people together where they're connecting, either through discussion or group work or something else. And I think those things, even if they're just for brief periods of time, are probably some of the most important things we can do right now is give them that space and time for exchanging ideas and sharing and making that contact. My gosh, and I know we got to move on. This question, we've been on for a while, but Claire, that was such a great concept. I remember a student in one of my classes from almost 30 years ago, and it was a night class. She kept dozing off, and I kept walking by her desk and saying, you know, maybe you better go splash some water on your face. And I walked by again, and maybe you should just like walk around the building once real quickly. And at the end of the class, I talked to her real quickly and I said, how are you doing? I'm really concerned about you. She said, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I almost didn't come to class tonight because I just worked a double shift and I'm absolutely exhausted. But this class is the only time during the week that I feel like a real valued human being. You know, with what Claire said, even without the pandemic, a lot of individuals are in home life situations. They're in jobs where they're not appreciated by their colleagues. I mean, it's one time during the day that students can feel like they mean something. And so even more so in the pandemic. But yeah, Claire, I'm glad you said that. I hadn't thought about her for a long time. It's nice. Yeah, it is connections. 
It's very important, very meaningful. And students, I truly believe they really appreciate those opportunities all the time, but especially right now when their opportunities are more constrained than they might normally be. Not just students, as faculty. (laughs) Interaction, too. I remember last semester, there were times when I had some really nice, deep conversations with some of my students, and it was like, wow, all right, this is the first time I've had a conversation with someone who's older than three. <laughs> Outside the immediate family. It's lovely. Yeah. We thought we'd ask each of you to share one of your favorite techniques that are in this book. Or most impactful for you. Comes down to a lot of different things, but sometimes I'm actually going to jump in and say it's kind of a combination. It was one that I didn't actually do, but it was one I just saw. But a technique, these techniques are so cool. Having a person open a Google form, we've mentioned Google forms several times in the book, but asking a quick question for the Google form of what do you think about this? The learners then typed what they thought. The individual was able to take those very quickly, download those into a word cloud and then presented the word cloud. Now we've got Answer Garden as a word cloud that we mentioned on a couple of the ideas and Google Forms is something else we use in it. But the ability to capture that information and turn it into a visual that quickly was just one that I thought was really amazing. I think my favorite is one, it's called Houston, We Have a Problem. And it's taken from Apollo 13, of course. And it's that great scene in the movie where the engineers have to figure out how to get the oxygen thing working on the spaceship. And so they have all this stuff, right? You can't give them new supplies and new tools because they're halfway to the moon. And there's this great line, you have to make this fit into that using just this. And so what I love about this is it's fundamentally problem solving, but it brings together knowledge and skills. And so you give students And it can be different depending on whatever class, of course. It can be a set of terms or methodologies or equipment or whatever it might be. But the students have to take these things and figure out how to use them. And I love the notion of that. I use versions of it in my own classes. The notion of having students take something, even things that might be out of the context of the class or even the discipline, and figure out how to make it work. Because I do think fundamentally to me, it gets to what you do when you leave us. The academy is this great place where we can play with ideas and information and learn skills, but it's somewhat sanitized. It's hard to really get to the messiness of what students are going to face when they leave us. And that to me is such a great activity where you've got to figure out how to get to a solution and you don't have all the information. You may not have everything you need to solve it, but you collectively as a group have to come. So I think we called it a game. I'm not sure it's entirely a game. There's probably a game element to it. But I just love the notion of students having to work together and kind of fight to a solution. Michael, did you say that you do this in some of your classes? I have, yes. Probably my favorite way to do it is for research design, actually, and give students a variety of different data sources and analytic techniques and a question they're trying to solve. And so they have to decide if I'm going to use this quantitative data or I'm going to use this qualitative method or I'm going to use a survey. And they've got to figure out how to do it. And I usually do it in a fairly compressed amount of time because what I'm trying to do is quickly think about the trade-offs in making methods, decisions, and research design. And so they can do everything they want to do, but they have to figure out how am I going to be able to answer this research question. And so it's real simple. I usually give them like index cards with terms on them, but then they have to work through and figure out the way they would do it. And what's often is impactful is to see how the other groups for the same question, how they got to a different way to get to the answer. And it opens up some great conversations about methods and rigor and validity and trade-off and research. And it's kind of a fun way to learn about those ideas. I like a lot of them, and it's really hard for me to choose. But I'm going to say Jigsaw 
just to pick one out of a hat, really. And I think Jigsaw, I mentioned it earlier, it's where you create base groups and students work in base groups to study something and learn about it and to decide how to teach each other. And then you recombine groups. One person from each base group joins a team. So they then teach each other what they learned in their base groups in their jigsaw group. And I think it's a wonderful technique to encourage collaboration and it involves students. It engages them. I have a story about it. I teach a college teaching course and I remember one year early in my teaching of this course, I wanted them to know about the history of college teaching. I thought it was important to have them understand where we've come from and how we've gotten to where we are. So I created this lecture. It was so long ago, y'all, that it was on overhead. Remember the clear overhead slides you put on the overhead projector? It was like that. And when I teach, one of the things that I do that's pretty useful is at the end of every class, I take notes on how things went. And then I put it away and I pull it out the next year I'm teaching or the next time I'm teaching the course. And so I had created this lecture about the history of college teaching, about pedagogy and higher education. And I gave it. And the next year I came back and I looked at my notes and it said, this was bad. This was really bad. This was bad for you. This was bad for them. Don't do it. I had had no memory of that at all. I thought, oh, good. I'm going to give my lecture. I've already got it done and everything. And so I, <laughs> I pulled back and said, all right, what I'm going to do is a jigsaw with this. So I gave each group a period of time. Y'all got the colonial period. Y'all got the antebellum period and so forth. So there were four or five periods. I don't remember how many I divided it into. And they got together and then they taught each other and they broke out into their new groups, taught each other. They were using games to teach each other. I think they busted out like Jeopardy and Pictionary and all these great things. They were so engaged and into it and they learned so much more, I promise, through that jigsaw than they ever would have through my lecture. And it was just a really good and useful activity. So that remains one of my favorites for that reason. But I also want to add that I like a lot of the metacognitive activities. It's one of the best ways to improve learning, right? But I think it's something that we don't always think about doing. And so things like wrappers or even opinion polls or the today I learned, what's the most important thing you learned today? They take so little time and can really, really deepen learning. And that's only three or four out of <laughs> 200. Well, I got to say, while we were chatting about that and Claire was talking about it, I just pulled up the chapter that we just finished. And if I have it right here, it was 14,000 words in that chapter. That was the metacognitive chapter. So this is a pretty dense book in the sense of there's tons of stuff. But if anybody who's interested, we have 14,000 word on metacognitive <laughs> strategies, the research behind it and how to apply it. And that's something that most faculty tend to ignore. So including that, I think, is really, really helpful. The evidence on that's overwhelming. It really is. And I would say meaty, not dense. Like, I don't think it's a real dense read. I think it's chocked full of goodness, right? Here's a lot of information. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> rich, information rich, yeah. I'm actually curious to see how the new book's going to look, though, because when I was looking through this, as we were going through updating everything, the standard out there is you're supposed to change 20% of the material. 
I think we added something like 30% new material over, and there was nothing to take out because there was nothing in there that was outdated. Nothing we'd written from the first edition was no longer valuable. So the previous book plus about 30% new. So it's going to be a very meaty book, but it's a good resource. Not meant to be read from cover to cover. It's just meant to open it up to what you need. So when can we start reading this book exactly? The book will be available in the latter part of June. So we always wrap up then by asking, what's next? In the universe or? However you really want to address this, because there's a lot. (laughs) Todd, you want to go first? Sure. I think what's next is just to get through spring. Michael brought it up too, and we've kind of touched on it. This is really hard. The pandemic, with everybody shifting to emergency remote teaching, we did that a year ago. And then there was so much uncertainty of what was going to happen in the fall. Instead of just saying, hey, everybody. We know months and months and months ahead of time that we're going to do this. We all want to get back together. So for many of us, UNC Chapel Hill is right at the lead of this one. As students arrived on campus and seven days later, they shut it down. And then spring came along and it's like, okay, but now we're going to be able to be face-to-face, right? And we're still doing either online teaching or emergency remote teaching. The differentiation, of course, the online teaching is a very thoughtful process where people put together this whole package of how you deliver education. And emergency remote is... We just do the best we can with the time we got. So I think the what's next is to get through the spring, take the summer. I wholeheartedly believe in the fall we'll be closer to being back together in classrooms. And then I think it's coming back to what both Claire and Michael have said. It's pulling the essence of some of the really cool things we've learned and embed those into classes for faculty members who have never even considered teaching online a year and a half ago or a year ago to now implement those strategies. And so I think that's what's next is how do we find some good out of all of the garbage that's been happening? And that's what I'm looking for. Pathological levels of optimism. I think we're going to get through it and then we're going to be better off in the future than we were in the past. I'll use one quick example of this because I work in a medical school. Flu rates are almost non-existent this year. And I knew that was going to happen six months ago because nobody took flu that serious. I shouldn't say nobody. A lot of people didn't. 30 to 50,000, it's hard to get these numbers sometimes, 30 to 50,000 people a year die from the flu. And now what we've got is a whole population that knows we should wash our hands, stay home when you're sick, and don't be in each other's space all too much, and wear masks when you need to. And because of that, I think next flu season's going to roll around, and I think people are going to put their masks on, stand back, and we're going to see flu rates with maybe 20,000, 30,000 people less dying every year. So with teaching, with health, I think down the road, it's putting new practices into place. Sounds like a lot of metacognition might be going on. I'm a metacognition nerd. (laughs) So I agree with Todd. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the pandemic and what's going to happen afterwards. I think the other really negative implication of the pandemic is that this moment of equity and inclusion has been too easily forgotten, I think, in corners of higher ed, myself included at times. We're so trying to get through the day that this reckoning that's happened, I worry that those of us in higher ed have forgotten it. And so we absolutely need to take some lessons from the pandemic for teaching. But I also think we've got to continue to work on the inclusion in our classrooms, be it an in-person classroom or an online classroom. That work is going to take a lot longer than the pandemic, I suspect, but is equally as important. Boy, Michael, I'm really glad you just said that because this whole thing has shown a huge light on the inequities in our systems. I think the inequities are huge, and I really do hope we can, at least with the big flashlight on there, maybe we can sort a few things out, but I'm really glad you said that. 
those inequities became much more visible to faculty with a shift to remote teaching. It was really easy to ignore these differences when everyone has access to the same computer labs, the same wireless network, the same study facilities, and some degree of food security with meal plans on campus. But when students dispersed and went home, all of that broke down and faculty suddenly had to become aware of that. And faculty are attending workshops at rates I've never seen before. Our attendance has just skyrocketed. And a lot of people have come to appreciate backwards design and building new things into their classes. So I'm really optimistic about many of these things, but we certainly need to do a whole lot more work on equity and inclusion issues. I think one thing I'll say is that faculty aren't typically taught how to teach. It's not something we usually take classes on in graduate school. It's not something that we receive a lot of training before doing it. Most of us have to learn through trial by fire, or we have learned by watching our own teachers growing up, going through grade school and high school and college. We figure out what works by being participants in it. So I think the result of this is a lot of us haven't had, again, that formal education in how to teach. We don't have the research grounding, the theoretical background. And a lot of times when we're just starting, we don't even have the practice. So what this pandemic has done has changed that because we've shifted to a new modality that most of us have never engaged with before. Most of us haven't taught an online course or an emergency remote course. And so we've had to figure it out on the fly. But what I think this has done is put it in the forefront. All of a sudden, teaching is something we really have to think about. It's something we really have to figure out because I'm doing it in this whole new way. And I can't just bank on what I suspect works. I have to figure out this new system. And so I think we do have a lot more people thinking about it. I think we also have more institutions investing in professional development in ways that we haven't before. And we have more faculty participating in professional development than we have before. And so I think it has highlighted teaching in a way that it hasn't been for everyone for a while. And I think that's good. If we're looking for some kind of silver lining here, I think we can say that all of a sudden people are at least more often really aware of teaching and thinking about what makes good teaching. And when you have to plan out an online course, it really makes you think through the process. I know we went in March to emergency remote teaching, but a lot of us were teaching online in the fall. And so when you have to think through a whole course in this new way, you really have to think through the process from start to finish. And I think it changes the way you think about teaching to teach online. And I hope in good ways, like Michael's saying, I hope that we can learn from what we've done and figure out, hey, this is stuff that works really well, or this is stuff that maybe doesn't work as well, and that we can take that back into whatever teaching mode we are in in the future. So I do think that there has been a big shift, and I think that's going to stay with us. I expect we're going to see more things done online going forward. And I don't want to say completely online. I am absolutely not saying higher ed is going online. I'm saying people may use some of the pieces of online activities that worked well for them. They may do an online assignment if they never did before. Or they may have a Zoom virtual office hour or something like that. So I think there are going to be some things that we take from this experience. 
And I think Todd has a book coming out on that, which we discussed in a podcast that was released on January 27th. Oh, creating equity-based digital learning environments? Well, yeah, I remember that one. Maybe that one, yeah. I want to add to that. I think faculty, I want to believe this, have become more aware of the need for compassion in their classes. I mean, it's easier when everybody seems healthy and well to say, you know, no late assignments or whatever, and it's in the syllabus and my late policy is this. But I want to think that people understand that people are sick or caring for sick people and that life circumstances are changed. Maybe they have their little kids at home with them. I think it's important to be compassionate for students and to understand their needs. And I think this is highlighted in addition to equity inclusion, just some more issues that people have lives and they're different when they're not on campuses and that we can be compassionate and kind to people. And that doesn't make us any less rigorous or whatever. It just means that we're kind and compassionate. I think our students will learn more when we are more aware of them as humans. We're seeing that in the pod network and the Lilly conferences, the stuff you just brought up. there anything dealing with mindfulness and compassion? Those types of things, people are just swarming to those sessions. They just love those things because it's just vital right now. You know, sometimes students will, when I send out something and I'll say, I just sent out a note to a student today and said, oh, your assignment didn't come through. I think you didn't respond to a peer, so it didn't come up in the grade book. Just want you to know I'm not going to count off late. Please just get it done. It's just like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for reaching out. I so appreciate it. It's like, who hurt you? You know, <laughs> it's, this should not be like this. And this has happened time after time where I'm just like being a nice human being to say, hey, you missed this or hey, don't forget this or whatever. And it's just this overwhelming response. And I don't think it needs to be that way. I think we need to show students that we do care about them and understand their situations and just want them to learn. And that doesn't mean I'm a softy. I don't want to say that we don't need to expect them to work hard and do the work and show up and all that. We absolutely do. We just need to understand their circumstances as well. And not assuming that male intent. I think sometimes that's what was happening before. The assumption that they did it on purpose or they're skipping out or something rather than just being like a reasonable human being who made a mistake or forgot something. Or you hear the thing, oh, their grandmother died. How many grandmothers do you have? Well, it doesn't matter how many grandmothers you have, you know? It's like, stop being that way. Maybe they do actually have three grandmothers, or maybe they have situations that they don't want to tell you about. Give them the benefit of the doubt until you can't, I think. But that's me. That's me. Not everybody feels that way. Here's the quick teaching tip on this one. I've just stumbled into this years ago and it worked out really well for me. I will have eight to 10 kind of general quote unquote rules. Just don't lie to me. Just be honest about stuff. And when I ask you a question, answer those types of things, I'll just say, here's 10 things. And I did this with the face-to-face classes a lot. And I'd say, now get into groups of four and come up with two or three things for each group that you'd like me to consider. What are some additional things you'd like me to consider? And the reason I brought this up is because of what you just said, Claire, with the who's hurt you. The very first time I did this, I just thought this would be a neat way of showing them it's a communal organization. I have expectations, but so do you. One of my students started out by saying, if another student starts to attack me, don't come to my defense, but please moderate the conversation. 
I can fend for myself if you'll control the situation. I thought, well, that's a really good one. The next one was, if we provide an answer and it's wrong, please don't call us stupid. Oh my gosh. And I thought to myself, they're not making this up. They're saying things that have happened to them. And so again, the quick teaching tip is on your first day of class, can be online, could be face-to-face. It's just, here are some of my expectations, and now I'd like to hear what are your expectations. And that's where you find out who's hurt them and you address it. I've also heard of people doing like life happens passes. You get one assignment or two assignments or whatever it is, no questions asked. Use the card when you need it. And I don't need to see your doctor's note. I don't need to see anything. Just you have your passes and use them as you will. And I think that's a fine way to handle it. Or you can just listen to them and say, okay, you can have an extension. Well, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation and it was great talking to you. And we're looking forward to the new edition of your book. Your first edition was invaluable as a resource. And this sounds like it's going to be even more so. It's like an exciting level up, it sounds like. Thank you. Yes, thank you both. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.